Hello, and welcome to the Compass Community Church Podcast. My name is Andy. I'm the Director of Worship and Creative Arts here at Compass. And before we get into this week's message, I want to take a quick moment and really just share some thoughts and ideas and hopefully have a way for you to be able to share yours as well. So traditionally, this podcast has been a simple audio recording on our weekly message. It's been a chance for you to catch up on past messages, or maybe you wanted to share the message with a friend, uh, or maybe you heard it on Sunday, but you you wanted to maybe listen to it again. And so here it is. You can listen to it. These are all great reasons to have a podcast, and they are great reasons to listen to a podcast. However, the thought has been rolling around in my brain. How else can we serve you better? I started to ask the question, why do I, Andy, listen to a podcast? Well, honestly, sometimes I listen to podcasts to be inspired. Sometimes I listen to a podcast to laugh and just have some lightheartedness in my life. Sometimes I do listen to the podcast for educational reasons or educational purposes, and sometimes it is for information. I'm going to be honest, I haven't had a chance to check our numbers and analytics and see who's listening and from where and demographics and all that other, all that other kind of stuff. But I'd like to think that regardless of where we are, that we could add to that number. It's not about growing our number base. It's about helping people connect because here at Compass, we strive to help people to connect and commit and thrive. And sure, we could do that through a simple push of our sermon through this podcast. But what if more people were able to connect to who we are and what we are? by hearing about an event and coming to that event? Or what if by hearing other people's voices and other people's thoughts and hearts, they start to commit and thrive in their faith? And so here's what I'm going to propose to you, our podcast audience. I'm hoping to put out a survey later on this week, uh, and there you'll be able to find on all of our social media platforms a survey to help us learn how to serve you better. I hope you look forward to that. In the meantime... This week, we start a brand new series called Meaningful, and here is a brief introduction to this series. When life feels meaningless, and when our search for joy in work and in status and stuff seems empty, the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us that these longings are intended to draw us closer to God. You see, life without God is meaningless, but Jesus' work on the cross gives us hope for the future and a meaningful purpose right now. And so this week, we're starting a new series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This this book is really important, but it doesn't offer us easy answers. You see, it was written by Solomon, who was full of wisdom and had just gathered vast wealth and influence and power. This guy had everything, but found that without God, he had literally nothing. As he nears the end of his life, Solomon reflects back on the questions, what has been meaningless and what has been meaningful? He asks what has been mundane and what is really important. These questions are an invitation for all of us to reflect on our own lives and to examine our own pursuits, asking what is ultimately meaningful in life? What is truly important? Are we striving for and pining after things that will ultimately just disappear? Are we living life for God? Are we living a life of purpose and contentment and satisfaction? Really big questions, and hopefully we're going to find the answers over the next five weeks. So today, let's join in with Andrew as he starts off meaningful in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the 1993 movie Groundhog Day, actor Bill Murray plays weatherman Phil Connors, who has to relive the same day over and over again for years. 
he's caught up and has to cope with a monotonous prison. And the comedy comes when he tries to find meaning and it seems like nothing really matters from one day to the next. And so he looks for happiness in different experiences and he tries all sorts of different quests for some semblance of meaning. He indulges in pleasures and short-term solutions like food and money and sex and violence. He even tries to pursue education and music and poetry, but nothing truly satisfies. What do we do when life feels meaningless, when our search for joy in our work, our stuff and our status seems empty? Today, we're beginning a new series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is important, but it does not offer easy answers. It was written by King Solomon, who was a man full of wisdom, who had accumulated vast wealth and power and influence. He had everything, but found that without God, he had nothing. As he, ends, as he nears the end of his life, Solomon reflects back and he asks himself, what has been meaningful and what has been meaningless? Over the course of his life, Solomon had pursued every avenue, experience, and interest, each kind of an experiment where he sought to find fulfillment. As king, Solomon had, had no limitations on what he could pursue. He had total freedom. He wasn't hindered at all. He could go in any direction as far as he wanted. But the result each time was frustration, emptiness, and dissatisfactions. And so as he writes his reflections, he uses the word vanity or meaningless 29 times to describe the ultimate end of every pursuit. But Solomon is not a despondent old man looking back on life with regret. Don't hear a sense of bitterness in his voice. He's not grumbling or complaining. He's a mentor who is full of joy and purpose. And through his experience, he's discovered a treasure that he wants us to have. He's like a wise friend sharing about what really matters. Who serves as a mentor in your life? Where do you go when you need wisdom, insight, or perspective? Some find that in, in relationship within the family, with parents and grandparents aunts or uncles. Some find it in a work colleague, a neighbor, or a friend. We're called to be that for each other in the church. In fact, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul being mentored by Barnabas, an older man in faith, and he in turn serves as a mentor to Timothy, a younger Christian. In the book of Titus chapter 2, older women are instructed to teach what is good and to train younger women in the faith. We all need wise and godly influences. Think of some of the famous examples of mentors in history or even in our modern context. Socrates mentored Plato. Steve Jobs men mentored Mark Zuckerberg. Jane Fonda mentored, was mentored by Katherine Hepburn. And Coach John Wooden mentored virtually every basketball player he coached for 27 years at UCLA. Or maybe you think about fictional mentors like Gandalf the Grey guiding Frodo Baggins in Fellowship of the Ring, or Luke Skywalker learning how to be a Jedi from Yoda. In my life, I have a couple of mentors, people I seek out and make time for, who I give permission to speak into my life. They share wisdom and remind me what ultimately matters and where my priorities have gotten a little out of whack. Who are your mentors and who are you mentoring? Here's my challenge for you. 
right at the start of this series. Can you identify someone who you consider wise? Someone you look up to spiritually and respect? In the next four weeks, I'd like for you to find a time to connect with them. Maybe just to thank them for the influence they are in your life or to ask them currently what their perspective is or if there's any wisdom they want to share. And whether you meet personally or over the phone or by email or by Zoom, share with them what you're experiencing and listen for their perspective on life. As a wise mentor, Solomon's words issue an invitation for all of us to reflect on our lives and to examine our pursuits, asking what is ultimately meaningful in life? What is truly important? How would you answer that question? What would you say if you were Solomon? When you look at your life, what are you striving for? Are you pining after things that will ultimately disappear? Or are you living life God's way? with purpose, value, contentment, and satisfaction. Well, let's listen to the mentor Solomon and his advice. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. To get there, just open your Bible to the middle. You'll probably be in the book of Psalms. And then just turn to the right and you'll go through Proverbs and you'll come to Ecclesiastes. And this kind of writing in the Bible is, is, is called wisdom literature. That's what we find here. And in wisdom literature, you won't find stories or long arguments. Wisdom literature is a series of short, wisdom-filled reflections, insights about the deeper, deeper aspects of life and faith. And here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it begins, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why do people gain, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurry back, hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning to on its course. The streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will always will be again, and what has, what has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. If there is any, anything of which one can say, look, this is something new, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not, remember, will not be remembered by those who follow them. Verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore, and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to, under, to the understanding of wisdom and, and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow and more knowledge, the more grief. 
someone was having a really bad day. I know that I said Solomon was not a grumbler, but this is a really tough way to start the book. Because with other books in the Bible, there's a sense of hope and proclamation. And you might wonder, what is this doing there? Because there is none of that here. The author is called the teacher. That's what Solomon calls himself. But if he were a teacher or a preacher, you would think that he could provide some, some solid answers. But the word Ecclesiastes actually means the gatherer, the professor, the wise one. This person is not a teacher in the sense that they are a lecturer. It is better to understand them as the discussion leader, the question asker, the philosopher. The book of Ecclesiastes will only be understandable if you realize that this is a book of questions, not answers. The professor's job is, is not to give the answers, but to ask you the questions that will push you and push you and push you to find the answers. There is a sense in which the book of Ecclesiastes should be the first book you read in the Bible because it sends you searching for the answers. And the rest of the Bible is where we find the answers. So over the next five weeks, we're going to look at these questions, questions that people have wrestled with for ages. And we're going to talk about them in the light of the rest of Scripture so that we can understand the beauty, power, and hope of the gospel message. I'd like to start today with a question that is found in, ver in verse 3 of chapter 1, where Solomon asks, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? In other words, what's the meaning of life? Now, that's a hard question to answer, and that's why this chapter seems so bleak, because it's saying the more you experience of life, the more you accomplish in life, the more you know about life, the more difficult it is to find meaning, because in the end, it all leads to nothing. Author John Ortberg has written a book called when, it, when the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And if that is true, if at the end of Ticket to Ride or Monopoly or Chess or even Snakes and Ladders, the game gets cleaned up and packed away, why bother playing in the first place? And if we ask that about a board game, how much more should we ask that about life? What do you gain? What do you have to show for all your toil under the sun? That, that word gain is used 10 times in Ecclesiastes. And it's a word that means profit or leftover. Profit is what is of permanent value and the leftover, and what is left over after everything else is tallied. When it's all been seen, said and done, what do you have to show for it? What is your life accomplishing? Where do you find meaning? Now, there are some classic answers that are given and explored here in chapter one. Answers that I think you will still find in philosophy classrooms today or at the local coffee shop because they are answers uh, that we come up with and that we run to. But in the end, they don't adequately answer the question. And the first one is this. I am here to make the world a better place. This is humanism. We are here to improve life for the rest of humanity. And this is a popular one. You hear it at many funerals. This person had a meaningful life because they enriched the lives of others. But the teacher's point is that ultimately, even our greatest contribution is insignificant because it does not last. Verse 4 says, generations come and generations go. And then in verse 11, he continues, no one remembers the former generations. 
And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. In the musical Les Mis, when the young people are preparing to fight and die on the barricades, one of them starts thinking and asks, will the world remember me when I fall? Could it be that my life means nothing at all? Solomon is saying, ultimately, in the light of human history, after a couple of generations, no one's going to remember you or your contribution. At best, you will be a footnote in history. You could leave a large amount of money to some good cause, and they might, they might name a building after you or a street. But eventually, you'll just be the name on a stone or on a plaque. Even if you become famous or a great leader, it won't last. Civilizations, civilizations come and go. Nations rise up and fall. What lasting difference can you make? In light of natural history, it's even more bleak. Verse 5 says the sun rises and sets and rises again. Verse 6 says the wind blows around and around. Verse 7 says the rains fall and flow to the sea only to become rain again. What are we compared with the fullness of natural history and the life of the universe? Nothing. If there is no God, if, if, nat if natural and human history is all we got, then ultimately everything pales to insignificance. And in the final analysis, there is no gain, no profit, nothing left over. And any thought of making the world a better place is just romanticism. It's all temporary at best. If everything will lead to nothing... If life under the sun is all there is, if there is no God who created you and there is no God who's sustaining the universe and if there is no eternity, no afterlife, then you are like a footprint in the sand at the ocean's edge. No sooner do you lift up your foot than a wave comes and the mark is gone. So this notion of making the world a better place comes up short. A second attempt might be, I'm here to enjoy the pleasures of the day. In other words, we're here for a good time, not a long time. And this is hedonism. It concludes that you can't take it with you, so you'd better go for it now. Create, be, get creative, write a poem, go for a walk, watch a sunset, enjoy your family, throw yourself into your work, cheer on the Blue Jays. That's all you can do. Don't look at the big picture. Don't ask what ultimately matters because you can't answer that. So just enjoy the pleasures of the day. But this answer, too, falls short. In verse 8, the teacher says, All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of its fill of hearing. What is being will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. In other words, the party eventually ends, and stuff doesn't fully satisfy our deepest desires. We know that. We just don't live like that. We are addicted to more. In verse 12, Solomon says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to explore, to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And in verse 14, he says, I have seen all things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And here's the point. If we were not put on the earth for a purpose... If we are just the result of some universal accident, if life under the sun is all there is, then the only way you can possibly enjoy your life is to simply not think about it. Just have fun. Keep yourself busy and distracted. This is the ostrich approach. What does the ostrich do when they sense danger? Head in the sand. I'm safe. 
But apart from God, the only way I can enjoy falling in love or enjoying being part of a family or doing something noble or simply is to simply not think about the fact that it's all just random, biological, accidental, and nothing will ultimately last. Any sense of beauty or morality or reason or justice or purpose is just made up. It doesn't really matter. It's an illusion, a daydream, and our best hope is just to stay asleep. But life has a way of slapping us awake, whether it's through suffering or celebration. And we have this internal sense that we were made for more than just pretending. That there is ultimately right and wrong and that there is purpose and meaning beyond just getting through the day. A third answer in chapter one is basically a response to the failure of the first two. It concedes that ultimately nothing lasts. It admits that pretending that it's all good does not lead to fulfillment. As an alternative, it says, I am here and will choose to make the best of it. I will determine my purpose based on my own subjective experience. This is existentialism and it's very brave. It does not deny the need for meaning. It just places you and me as the source of that meaning. It seeks to make a choice. The world seems senseless. I will not be. The world is uncaring. I will not be. Life may be meaningless, but I'm going to be gracious and generous and noble in the face of it anyhow. Even though the world will win, I will choose to be compassionate. I will work for justice. I will still lead a life of courage and commitment and integrity in spite of it. Pushing back against the insanity of it all, I will find meaning in life. The only problem is, where do you get the standard of what is right, just, noble, and good? How can you say that something is unfair or not right unless you appeal to a standard of fairness that's outside of yourself? Otherwise, it's just your opinion versus mine. In verse 17, the teacher is seeking to, to make the best of it when he says, I applied myself to, understanding, to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. He says, I tried wisdom. I even tried being crazy and rebelling against the evil of the world, and yet I didn't find meaning in it either. Do you see where this chapter is going? The teacher is pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to find meaning. And in the end, there are really only two options. One, if there is no God, everything is meaningless. Living in a world where God is absence and this earth, earthly life is all there is leads us to conclude to the conclusion that life is ultimately not worth living. Option two, if there is a God who created you, a God who loves you, a God who sustains you, a God who will judge you, a God who will in the end make things right, if there is an afterlife and an eternity then there is a purpose and a meaning in life. These are two radically different options and there really is nothing in the middle. If there is eternal life found in God who is above the sun, then there is purpose for everything under the sun. The teacher investigates the answers the world offers and finds that they come up short. That's the point of chapter one. We are pushed to look outside of the book of Ecclesiastes to find the answer, to find the wisdom. And we find it in the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, chapter one, verses one to five, it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God and God created everything through him and nothing that was created except through him. 
The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought to light, brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. The wisdom that Solomon was looking for is found in Jesus. Jesus is the word. He is the Logos, wisdom personified. He is the life who created all things with purpose and meaning. He is the light that the darkness cannot overcome. He is the truth that makes life make sense. He is the standard by which I can know what is good, noble, and right. And if you want to move from meaningless to meaningful, you find it in the design and intent of the Creator. Christianity says, I am here to know, love, and serve God now and forever. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, makes that possible. The Logos is not an abstract principle. The Logos is not a theory. The Logos is a person, and that person is Jesus. When your life is connected to his, suddenly it is all profit, now and forever. And if everything you do during your day, your work, your family, your relationships, your character, your life choices, your thoughts are connected to Jesus, then suddenly all of life is infused with meaning. And it becomes a, dra a grace that draws us closer and closer to God. And everything matters for now and for eternity. Let the quest for a meaningful life drive you to Jesus. If you live for, the, for life under the sun, you'll lose your life. But if you live for the one who is above the sun, then suddenly the, the, all of life will be infused and filled with purpose and with meaning. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. That's the invitation. We find the wisdom in Logos. We find it in Jesus. Let's pray together. Before we, we pray, I just want to give you a moment to think back over the last hour. What stands out to you? Was there a song or a word or a verse or a thought that caught your attention? What might be God asking, be asking you to do or to stop doing in response to his word? What reminder did you receive? What questions do you still have? Just take a moment to be quiet and to reflect back with God and to listen for his nudging. Oh God, thank you for the invitation to reflect on our lives and to examine our pursuits, asking what is truly important. Forgive us for striving for things that will ultimately disappear. Lord, would you teach us to live your way with purpose, value, and contentment. Thank you for the questions that drive us to Jesus. And I pray, Jesus, that you would not just be a principle or a theory, but that you would become wisdom personified in our life and that we would build our lives on you. May your presence, O oh God, surround us and go with us. Put your faith within us. Infuse all of life with meaning and purpose, I pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.